Welcome to Catalyze. I'm your host, Sarah O'Carroll. We're kicking off our spring season with Sarah McKenzie, class of 2020, and the 51st Rhodes Scholar from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations again on your Rhodes Scholarship. That is such great news, and we are really excited for you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited too, and still in a bit of shock, it seems, but just really can't wait, and I'm so grateful. What were you doing when you found out? <laughs> That's a good, a good question. I got the call at around 12, 15 in the morning on the Saturday night. Yeah, and so <laughs> I had been just kind of waiting for it. The committee had notified us that we had to be kind of on call and ready to receive a phone call starting at about 7 p.m. that day. And so I was just kind of pacing around uh, my apartment and just waiting for the call and talking to Chuck a little bit and some of the other candidates who are also waiting for the phone call who I connected with over the weekend. Um, So I was really grateful when it finally came in, but it felt like it was a long time coming for sure. Well, that must have been such a moment of relief and celebration. So tell us what you're thinking of studying at Oxford and why you chose that field of research. Yeah, sure. So I'm looking to study a MPhil in evidence-based social intervention and policy evaluation. It's housed in the Department of Social Policy and Intervention. And the reason I, I chose that particular program is because I felt as though I was really lucky to have a strong Um, educational background in public policy from my undergraduate degree at UNC. And I found that the research component of my undergraduate experience was really formative and something that I had kind of just barely scratched the surface of. And I wanted a two-year program that would enable me to work on a longer term thesis and project and also kind of refine some of my analytical and research skills. You've got quite some time to think about this, but do you already have some ideas on what sort of project you might do for your thesis? I think that something that is really important to me and that I care about is the interaction between poverty and involvement in the criminal justice system. And so I can really imagine a thesis kind of going in that direction. And um, I'm originally from Canada and I wrote my undergraduate thesis on criminal justice and poverty in Canada. And I think some sort of extension of that topic would be compelling to me. But, you know, at the same time, I think what really excites me about Oxford and this program is the potential and opportunity to have my interests and my discipline expanded and to encounter new projects that I think are exciting and beyond my kind of current academic scope. I could see myself being pulled in a particular direction, depending on who I'm surrounded by in the department. You've mentioned a few times the connection between poverty and other socioeconomic factors, a topic you've researched at Carolina and also through your work in New York City. Tell us about what you've been up to at the public defense law firm there and the kinds of problems your team is tackling. So I accepted this job in New York City at a public defender's office in Manhattan. Um, It's called the Center for Appellate Litigation, and we represent low-income defendants in their criminal appeals in proceedings in both Manhattan and the Bronx. Um, And I accepted this job 
in the spring of 2020 and moved up here in July of 2020. So I've been here uh, for a couple months now. And the project that I work on uh, within that office is representing defendants who have sex convictions who are then going to be evaluated and given a particular risk level and a designation on the New York Sex Offender Registry. These risk level hearings are really interesting and really challenging, but they carry pretty severe consequences for our clients. And those consequences range from, you know, public exposure on the internet, including photos and home addresses, and then at the highest level restrictions on their access to housing and other social services. And so it's been really interesting to think about the interaction between public policy and law and the impact that it has on low-income people, because I think the Sex Offender Registration Act that we're working under really seeks to um, punish people for, you know, heinous crimes that they've committed, but to continue to do so well past they've served their sentence and into their life beyond the term that they've been incarcerated. And so it's been I think really challenging to try and advocate for our clients to continue their treatment, their programming, um, and to get them stability and access to social services, which, you know, I think is really in line with an appropriate um, preventative kind of public health based response to thinking about crime, one that focuses on stability as a means to prevent recidivism. Besides, of course, wrongful convictions, what are some other issues the center emphasizes so that people can have a better understanding of the complicated realities your clients face, both within the criminal justice system and post-release, that really helps push their case? Yeah, no, that's a, a great question. And I'm I'm glad you brought up the issue of wrongful convictions. And I think there's a bit of a focus in the criminal justice world about innocence and wrongful convictions. And I think that's super important and a really crucial issue to be thinking about. But we don't really argue innocence in any of our hearings. And in fact, it's kind of detrimental for our clients to do so because a lot of what helps them um, obtain like a lower risk level is to show acceptance for responsibility and remorse. And that can be complicated for some of our clients who maintain their innocence. But in the vast majority of cases, our clients accept what they did and they've gone through pretty extensive treatment and they're really looking to atone for their actions and um, kind of go through a reconciliation process with their community. And so rather than focusing on the kind of um, facts of their particular case, we talk a lot about um, the mitigating circumstances surrounding the offense. And by that, I mean the particular social, socioeconomic, familial um, health and public health conditions in their personal life that contextualize their crime. And so we talk a lot about things like addiction and alcohol and drug dependency as a factor that contributed them to um, committing this sort of harm. Or we talk about, particularly I think with sex cases, it's pretty well established that there's uh, an intergenerational pattern of harm whereby if you experienced abuse as a child, you're much more likely to um, 
to commit that abuse later. And so a lot of our clients, if they're being charged with this abuse, they have that in their childhood and their background as well. And then other things like just being exposed to lack of um, comprehensive education and um, just kind of living in, in poverty. And so we really try and humanize our clients and we don't really minimize the extent of the harm that they cause the victims in their case, but we try and place it in its appropriate context. And that's really, I think, the important um, aspect of what we do. And actually, I wonder um, if I could pull this quote up quickly. We had a client who we lost a case for recently, but he sent us a really nice note yesterday Um, talking a little bit about the type of representation we gave to him. And he said, even though I think that the outcome will be unfavorable toward me, I would like you to know that after all the years that I've been made out to be a monster and a beast, you made me feel like a human again. And I think that that's really the crux of what our representation tries to achieve is to humanize a population that the purpose of this law is to deem as um, monstrous. Hmm. Now, you've worked on various projects with a racial equity lens throughout your time at UNC Chapel Hill, including on land use in Hillsborough, North Carolina, for the town commissioners, and talking about racial disparities within the legal system. In many ways, this conversation and related research has been going on for decades, but I'm curious to hear your take on whether the more mainstream dialogue on systemic racism is also infiltrating into your work at the center and more broadly across the field in new or different ways as a result of the events of the spring and summer of 2020, particularly with respect to the less direct, less obvious inequities that you witness your clients face and have spoken a bit about already today. I do think that there's a lot of hope in this moment, not only from a policy perspective. You know, I think that the policy I work with in New York is, um, I think, maybe here to stay for a little while, but we hope that there's reform. But for example, the work that I did in DC, where we were um, petitioning for early release of some of our clients who had been sentenced to really harsh um, sentences when they were children in the 90s. Um, That work kind of emerged out of this law called the Incarceration Reduction Act that recognized that, you know, DC and many places in the United States were locking up young kids of color, particularly young Black men, based on kind of fake pseudoscience about what the idea of the super predator is, um, and that there's a need to remedy that. So that's what this law did. And then I think also just on a interpersonal and personal level, there's a greater conversation happening about um, kind of the role of internalized, you know, white supremacy and white supremacy culture in our institutions and our workplaces and our homes and the role that racial equity and a reckoning with this kind of um, internalized understanding of white supremacy can play in our personal lives and can help us, you know, make our relationships stronger and more equity based and help us grow as people. I think that that was also a really big part of um, my Carolina experience was like attending racial equity institute trainings that really focused a lot about on not only these like structural and historical um, like 
issues of racism, but also the internalized um, biases that all of us hold as a result of just the environment that we grew up in. So I think the fact that there's a lot more of an awareness of how pervasive that culture is in our everyday lives, and it's not something that's just based in history or in policy, is actually like a really hopeful and really exciting thing that I've seen more people, particularly more white people, engaging in in the last year than I ever have, which is great. Hmm. Well, we are looking forward to seeing what all you do in Oxford. My last question is just how you're thinking of prioritizing the time you have left uh, and what you hope to get accomplished before heading to the UK. Yeah, I will be working at this job until um, kind of mid to the end of July this year. So I still have a little bit more time and I'm just trying to really um, take as much opportunity as I can to you know, work on the cases that I care about and continue to develop relationships with my clients and the attorneys I work for. Um, I feel lucky to work in a really um, warm and supportive workplace that has me doing meaningful work. So I'm grateful for that. I'm going to continue to do that. And then, you know, I, I kind of hope that as um, things maybe move slowly away from some of the restrictions that are in place as vaccines come out and hopefully more appropriate public health measures get implemented not only in New York, but across the country that I'll be able to take advantage of being in New York a little bit more than I maybe have been in the last half year or so. Um, And then I think I would really like to go home for um, some period of time and visit my family in Calgary and spend some time with them. I haven't been home um, since December 2019. Um, So I, I would really like to go visit them and just kind of like connect and ground myself before I head to the UK. Sarah, thank you so much again and best of luck with the remainder of your time in New York City and preparing for your next chapter. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really great to chat and um, yeah, I'm just so grateful to be part of this Moorhead community. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Catalyze. I'm your host, Sarah O'Carroll, and that was Sarah McKenzie, class of 2020, and the 32nd Moorhead Kane to receive the Rhodes Scholarship, and one of just two Carolina students to receive the honor this year. The second awardee, Peter Andringa, also graduated in 2020 with degrees in journalism and computer science. You can let us know what you thought of the episode by finding us on Twitter or Instagram at Moorhead Kane, or you can email us at communications at moorheadkane.org. 